So in our oldest manuscripts that we have of the Hebrew, uh, we notice that there's something uh, important happening uh, when okay. it comes to how we describe Rebecca. And that is that Rebecca is described as a young man. What? Hello, and welcome to Evangel Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical and cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Shiver. And Don, when we say biblical literacy, discipleship, historical and cultural context, what are we talking about? Uh, well, so biblical literacy is this idea of knowing the uh, fullness of Scripture instead of just the uh, bits and pieces that you prefer. And uh, then uh, cultural and uh, context would be understanding what the first listeners may have understood the passages to mean. And discipleship is as simple as attempting to align our belief with our behave. Yeah, so that's what we're about here at Evander Bros. We're not trying to proselytize you or anything like that. We're not trying to convince Speak you. Speak for our... yourself, George. <laughs> well, that's true. We're not really trying to do that. We're, we're more about subverting that. We're trying to give you some new ideas, some new tools, and some new ways of thinking about the text. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, we're continuing our uh, series on the Torah readings, um, and this is week five. That we will you said be that with a question mark? Yeah, uh, because I got self-conscious as I was saying it. I think you should actually say everything with a question mark inflection at the end of your sentence. Thank you, Don. You're welcome, George. <laughs> um, so this week we are talking about mainly Sarah and uh, her lifetime. And, you know, there's a little uh, field trip that one of Abraham's servants goes on to find a spouse for Isaac. And it's pretty interesting. So... It's kind of a depressing portion, really. I mean, Sarah dies, Abraham dies, and the the best part about the story is that Isaac gets a wife, and he doesn't even get to go to the well like everybody else to get his own spouse. No, someone goes for him. I mean, how do you swipe right when you don't, you have to like travel all that distance? <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, you're right. That is like, although that's kind of what we, and we'll find this out later on, that's kind of what we come to expect from Isaac. I mean, Isaac is really kind of a wet blanket in this whole story. He's there because he's there. And yeah, I mean, he's rarely the centerpiece of any of the stories about him. Yeah, he's like, he is the driving force behind uh, Rebecca being able to hear from Yahweh. Don't be, you're giving spoilers, man. That's next month. That's next week. Spoiler alert. Well, we'll, we'll leave all that out. No, but really though, I mean like, so, um, well, so before we get sidetracked on all of this and start talking about next week's portions, uh, is there, what in this reading kind of jumped out to you? I was up till pretty late in the morning. Um, just trying to 
I mean, for me, the only thing that was really kind of fun, if I can say that, was, uh, and I feel bad even saying fun, but it's when Abraham uh, makes it to Sarah's body and we see ancient Near Eastern um, bartering going on. I think they call that haggling. Haggling, yeah. I mean, that's like, oh, okay, this is kind of, this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a couple pieces there with the Sarah thing that might go unnoticed as well. Like, first of all, this is the only portion, I believe, and this is kind of like your uh, portion week five. Like, uh, I lost confidence as I said it out loud that uh, is named after someone and it's named after a woman. It's named after Sarah. And I think that, you know, this is kind of an important thing to recognize that uh, we have a portion here. Abraham and Sarah both die. And this portion is named after Sarah. And uh, so I think that's interesting. I also think it's interesting that she's the only woman in the Bible, at least in the Hebrew Bible, that her age at death is mentioned. And it's really interesting because she's 127. So, uh, George, can you can you parse out at all what you might imagine 127? Why that would be a significant number? Um, hold on, let me think about this for a second. And by think you mean let me Google it? No, I'm not actually googling it. Nope. I was, I was checking my calculator to see if it was divisible by seven. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I, I have no idea. I mean, I think it's interesting that, uh, I mean, the question you, you say that and you're right. I, I, the, one of the things that comes to mind is, okay, well, how old was Isaac when the binding of Isaac happened? Like how long were Abraham and Sarah actually apart for before she died? Like, you know, I, you know I what I mean? Know. Since she was... Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, keep keep going. So what do you... Do you know what the uh, the Jewish mindset is on uh, what a perfect lifespan is? No. So it's, it's Moses's age at death because they looked at Moses and said Moses was uh, the most righteous... And so his lifespan reflects what a, a a most righteous person's lifespan would be. Do you know how old he was when he died? 127? Close. He was 120. So close. So 120 years is like the perfect lifespan. Um, now, it's a bit anachronistic to read this back because we haven't even met Moses yet in this passage. But the rabbis read this and said that uh, Sarah lived to be 120 plus seven. And so the 120 demonstrates the righteousness of her life. uh, And the seven represents the completeness of her life uh, or the sacred of her life. And so the 127, according to ancient rabbis and maybe modern rabbis as well, represents in some significant way something about what god thought of sarah so whether or not she was actually 127 is almost insignificant it's it's another 
method of storytelling that we miss out on as Westerners who just say, what a weird thing to write down. Like, who cares that she was 127? So there you have it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is interesting. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, uh, we see that, um, Sarah passes and Abraham goes and, uh, he finds a cave, says he's a foreigner in the land and he purchases, purchases a cave, the choicest area to bury the body of Sarah for 400 silver shekels you know i don't i don't know that i noticed that it said it was the choicest area oh um, yeah, it's a 23 uh, 10 11 area i see where you might have got that in verse six where it says listen yeah. to us my lord you're a chieftain of god among us bury your dead in the choice of our tombs not a man of us will hold back his tomb from you yep um but, but i actually say she was buried there Right, because it says, if it's acceptable to you to bury my dead from in front of me, listen to me and intercede for me with Ephron's son, that he'll give me the cave of Machpelah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I just never, I kind of uh, separated those two and, and didn't necessarily connect that uh, he buried her in a choice space, so to speak. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so that happens and then, um, Abraham, uh, leaves and he makes the oath with his servant for, um, his servant to go find a or Isaac, a wife. Well, before we jump that up there, I mean, let's, let's talk real quickly about the haggling, right? Because there's some important pieces there for us to kind of recognize, right? That, uh, they're offering to give it to him and he refuses to let them give it to him. Right. Yet rabbis say uh, you if you don't uh, allow someone to do good to you, then you're stealing their opportunity to serve you. Uh, yet here in this situation, Abraham is refusing to take the land for free. And yes. then he drastically overpays. Like hugely overplays. Say that in your best Donald voice. Uh, you know, he hugely overpays. Uh, and like a ridiculous amount. And so why do you think George that this is is how this is recorded? Why why is this important to uh for this to happen in this way? Honestly, I have no idea. Um I mean, we know that Abraham has the wealth uh and this is his you know, if we're touching back on kind of what we spoke about in the first couple of weeks, we know that Abraham um most likely really love Sarah considering he stayed with her for as long as he did with uh, her not being able to give him an heir. And in the culture at the time that mean, you know, he would have moved on to another wife and he did kind of abandon her after the binding of Isaac. Yeah, and you might not catch that if, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, uh, because some of the, the the translations kind of just say he arose and uh, cared for her as opposed to he went in or he arrived. Um, 
And so depending on your translation, you might not even notice that he wasn't present uh, when she died. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this is very, I mean, this is purely personal and not based on anything, but whenever I've upset my wife or I, I feel like I've hurt her in any way, I definitely try to overcompensate that in whatever way I can. So I would say in this situation, he's not just buying her an extra large bouquet of flowers. I mean, she's dead. She won't know. For uh, sure. But instead, I would argue that the first plot of land that Israel owns in Canaan, Abraham couldn't imagine that someone other than God would be the one to give it to them. And so, uh, so for them to give it to Abram, he refuses because and then he overpays so it can never be said i would argue that look what we did for israel and have any stake or claim back on that promise that the promise only can come from god still and so i would argue that uh, you know he wants to make sure that there is no if ands or buts about it that this situation is still no one's generosity other than God's puts them in the promised land. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um, when the King of Sodom wants to pay Abraham for, uh, you know, pay him like a tithe because he rescued Lot and all of them with his, with his army. And Abraham refused the money saying uh, the Lord told me not to accept anything from you because I don't want I don't want Sodom to have anything to do with saying that they helped Abraham get rich. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah. All right. So um, we move on from there. And this is something I have a uh, question for you on. Okay. Um, Because I, it's been years since I've read some of these passages and um, I haven't retained what I remember of them as well as I would have liked. So the, the oath that the that Abraham and let me find the servant's name really quick. If Eliezer. Eliezer, thank you. Um, put or your hand Eliezer. under my thigh. Yeah. The hand under the thigh. What is that? You know what it is. That's why you're asking me. No, I honestly, I, I was racking my brain last night because I didn't want to look it up and I couldn't remember what it was. So biblical thigh, biblical feet, me. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Why don't you just tell everybody that doesn't understand, Don? Why don't you, since you had a recollection? Well, you're the one that has kids, so you've probably given this talk before, and I haven't. And I just don't want to mess it up. I've never had the talk with my 15-year-old son about how to have your servant grab your genitalia to make a promise to find a spouse for them. Thank you for telling our listeners. Dang it, you conniving co-host. Well, I learned from the best. All right. No, okay. But the significance of this in, in the ancient Near East, what like it's he doesn't so what we've seen as far as oaths go, previously we've seen the blood oath. Sure. And like and we talked about circumcision last week. Yeah, we did. And so really what Eliezer's doing is probably holding on to the circumcision. He's making a covenant. That he will, because again, the the circumcision represents fertility and descendants and descendants within covenant. 
And so Abraham is like, make me a promise that you will find my, you know, the issue of my loins, Isaac, a, um, a bride and carry on the descendants. So this, this moment here, you know, so there's some people who feel really uncomfortable if, about the fact that this is a, uh, is a grabbing the genitalia of Abraham moment. Uh, but we're really kind of left with that's most likely, I mean, sure. Maybe he put his hand under his actual thigh, but there isn't really much imagery there uh, for what uh, what the reasoning for that would be. But we do have a history of of understanding the Hebrew of feet and thigh, just basically appendage to reference genitalia. I mean, it's the Ruth and Boaz story where she goes in while he's sleeping and it says she climbs under his robe and uh lays down at his feet uh it it changes that story quite a bit when you uh understand the uh the imagery that's going on there because you know as i often say nobody has a robe that goes down below their feet right that's a tripping hazard we wouldn't do that yeah and i unless it's a snuggie i think as your (laughs) as your wife pointed out Yes, but I will say that that is something that you do actually often say, which yes. is kind of funny. Okay, so uh, moving on. Abraham says, no Canaanite women for Isaac. Go back to my old digs. Yeah. I mean, that's a rough translation, but. Yes, you're correct. He does say that. Yeah. All right, so Eliezer heads off. Um, and on his way, Eliezer is trying, he's praying to Yahweh, I guess. Um, and you know, he's asking, Hey, look, um, I don't want to fail. Let me, I'm going to say this phrase, uh, and hopefully, you know, you'll find it that you can bless us and, uh, the lady at the well will respond in this way. And that's how I'll know that this is the person that, you know, Isaac should marry. Right. So in this instance, we can kind of assume that it's Eliezer, but he's not actually named in this passage, right? We have to go back to, I think like chapter 15 to find, uh, the head of the, uh, servants that is going to inherit everything. If, uh, Abraham does not find a uh, spouse for Isaac. And so in this moment, it's an unnamed servant that I would say most people assume is Eliezer. Uh, but it is interesting that this is the first tight time we see this type of prayer, right, in all of Scripture. It's the, it's the introduction of the God, if you really want me to do this, let me get the next two green lights. Yeah. It's, this is the first of those prayers and it's by an unnamed person, at least in this chapter and God honors it, which is really kind of an interesting moment, right? That, uh, I think should be encouraging 
because often we think about these moments and it's by named individuals, it's by patriarchs or matriarchs. And it's, but in this instance, it's a servant who prays this prayer and God answers the prayer. So, so one of the things in 24 that I think is really important is that you know, there's this long winded section of the story being told at the beginning of 24. And then the second part of 24 is just kind of the retelling of everything that happened. And it's like, it's, it's super repetitive. So, so George, what would you say is some of the questions that you should ask when you see something like this? Where have I seen something like this before? Well, that's easy because it was at the beginning of the chapter. Well, I meant in the text. Yes. But you're, I, you're, you're asking about the repetitive nature of it, right? Or are you asking about what that text actually says? So whenever we see a repetitive t- text, what is it that we want to do with that repetitive text? Yeah. So one of the first questions that I would ask is, are there any other stories that I've seen this play out in? Okay. And so, so I'll just kind of cut to the chase on that one. It's, it's really like, Anytime it's repeated, it's because it's important. Yeah. So um, why is it being repeated? Okay. Um, what's different in the second telling than in that's the first? The, that's, the, that's the main question. Yeah. Is there any differences in these? And sometimes we get glazed over and bored. And so we, we just, we're just assume that they're the same. But the first telling and the second telling are significantly different in four primary ways. All right. So this is where I think, for me, I find some really intriguing uh, views on this passage. And uh, my apologies if you can hear like a shushing sound in the background. Of course, at 9.30 in the morning while we're recording this, my neighbor has decided to power wash his driveway. So I apologize if that's coming through. Um, so one of the first things is, is that Abraham, you mentioned it, Abraham sends Eliezer to where? Uh, his hometown. The right. place where uh, God called him out of. Right. So when Eliezer is explaining this to Laban, what does he say? Where does he say he was sent? Uh, but you shall go to my father's house, to my kindred, to get a wife for my son. So what's different? Abraham just says, go back to where I lived. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Not, not to... But Laban says, but yeah, Eliezer says to Laban, and I'm just going to say Eliezer, even though it's an unnamed servant. um, But Eliezer says to Laban, I was sent to my father. I was sent to Abraham's father's house, which is the first. There's other nuances, but I'm going to point out four. And I want to say that I am, my understanding of this passage is uh, this particular piece of the passage is deeply indebted to uh, a website that uh, that I adore. They do some really cool teachings and stuff, uh, and it's called Aleph Beta uh, or Beta. Uh, and anyhow, it has some really interesting stuff on the website. And so I am 
uh, I found this part of their their conversation so compelling that I am pulling from them uh, immensely. So I just want to make that clear. This is not any in any way my original ideas here. Uh, now I would say that I do uh, on my own always compare the differences between two passages. Their conclusion is what I find to be super interesting and compelling. So, uh, so then the next piece, uh, so verse 12, it's, it's in verse 12. What is it that Eliezer is asking God to show Abraham or to give Abraham? Okay. My translation that I have says that, uh, oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me good fortune this day and deal graciously with my master Abraham. So Eliezer is asking him for good fortune? Yeah, I would say kindness, right? I think kindness is what I think a lot of people are going to find in their text uh, is they're going to find this word kindness. So uh, basically show kindness to my Lord Abraham. So where, what is it that Laban is told by Eliezer? When Eliezer repeats this moment, he doesn't use the word kindness. He says something else. What does he say that he asked God for? Um, I'm looking it up one second. It's going to be verse 40. The Lord whose ways I have followed will send me his angel uh, with you and make your errand successful and he will get away from my son, from my kindred, from my father's house. So what does he change kindness to? An angel. Success. No. So the first difference is he changes homeland to father's house. Then he changes that God would grant him kindness to Abraham to success. Right? Yeah. Okay. So then the next thing I want to look at is when Eliezer meets Rebecca at the well, what does he do? After she does everything, <laughs> after she, uh, you know, uh, after it says, and she finished letting him drink and she said, I'll draw waters for your camels too. And he does that. She does that. And in 22, it says, and it was when the camels finished drinking, what does, what does Eliezer do there in 22? He took out a gold nose ring weighing a half shekel and two gold bands for her arms weighing 10 shekels. Okay, so the first thing he does after she does this is he gives her jewelry, correct? correct. Then what does he do after that? Uh, hold on one second. I jumped ahead too quickly. Ah, uh, you were ready for me to say, what's it say in the next section? Yeah, I was trying to be, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, he asks, whose daughter are you? Is so he doesn't even I... ask who she is at this yeah. point. Because guess what he's not concerned about? Her. No. He's not concerned about it being her uh, Abraham's father's house. Oh. Because he just is trying to find this person. Yeah. And so he's not concerned about being uh, Abraham. He knows he's in the homeland of Abraham. So to him, it was actually her that was important, not who she was a part of. Right? Because when she did, when she uh, was demonstrated this act of service 
uh, or servitude or kindness, if you will, to uh, to Eliezer, that's when he gives her the jewelry. It didn't matter to him whose family she was a part of. She was in the right homeland. Yeah. Yet when he talks to Laban, he says it was important that it be a part of Abram's father's house. Okay. So now when he's retelling this story, what's different? Uh, Let's see. I inquired for her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, uh, whom Milak bore to him. And I put the rings on her finger, then I bowed low in homage to the Lord and blessed Lord, God of my master Abraham. Uh, so what's who, different? That uh, he got down and blessed the Lord because it was the... No, I don't know. I have no idea what's different then. He... Oh, he asks who she is first, and yep. then yes, yeah, yep. So in this in this version, he goes in. It's the father's house. It's about success, and the most important thing to Eliezer when he meets Rebecca is whose family is she a part of, right? Yes. So now let's look at verse twenty-seven. All right. And what does that say? Uh, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master, Abraham, who has not withheld his steadfast faithfulness to my master or from my master. For I have been guided on my errand by the Lord to the house of my master's kinsmen. Okay. So let me read my version. Cool. uh, Because your version is cutting out. Uh, some of the stuff in there that I think is going to be helpful to the listener. Yeah. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who hath not forsaken his kindness and his truth toward my master. Okay. Then in verse 48, when this is being repeated, it says, and I bowed my head and prostrated myself before the Lord and blessed the Lord the God of my master, Abraham, who had led me in the path of truth. So what is different? Uh, for which time? Okay. The verse 48 is the second reading. So what changed between the first reading and the second reading? Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who hath not forsaken his kindness and his truth toward my master. That's 27. 48 is blessed the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who had led me in the path of truth. Oh, uh, that uh, he's he's saying that he blessed God for uh, showing him what he was meant to find, which was the somebody from his father's household. Whereas before... Like he's saying that in 48. And f- before that, though, he's just saying, hey, thanks for helping me fulfill this errand. Well, I think, I think you're, you're, you're trying to get into it uh, a little bit further than it is here because it's just he simply drops the word kindness again. Oh. All right. So in 27, uh, who hath not forsaken his kindness and his truth 
and then in 48, who had led me in the path of truth. Yep. So once again, when Eliezer is speaking to Laban, he drops the, the idea of kindness again. Yeah. So the question is, why does Eliezer change all of these pieces? Right? Like what happens between the first experience and the second experience? The first experience is, you know, homeland and kindness and giving jewels first and then uh, asking who she is. And then it ends with kindness and truth. And the second one is father's house, success. Then it's who is she? And then the jewels. And then it's truth. Right? So something has changed in the way that Eliezer is deciding to tell the story, right? Clearly, he seems to imagine that Laban values something differently than maybe his master Abraham values, right? Eliezer, who grew up in the household of of Abraham, who has uh, lived with and been a part of the family. I mean, Abraham basically calls him his the person who's going to inherit everything, right? So there's a, a, a deep intimacy and relationship there between the two. And so when he's thinking about what kind of prayer he would say or what hopes he had and what kind of character he has when he reflects on Abraham, it includes all of this stuff of, of kindness and just generosity, right? But when he meets Laban, all that changes. And it seems like he's trying to say the things that will appeal to Laban. But the question is, why does Eliezer think that Laban would not be interested in the stuff that Abraham's interested in? Like what in the text triggers this? What in the text tips us off to this? Um, I, I, can you ask the question again? Because that kind of, can you ask that question again? What is it about Laban that tips Eliezer off to what it is that he imagines Laban, uh, values that's different than what Abraham values? Um, one second. I think I know the answer. I just need to look at the text and I need to think about it for a second. Okay. If you get this, I will give you 150 gold stars. I, this is such a cool device here. So, so do this, man, get this because I will be so blown away. Okay. The only thing I can think of is he sees the, okay, in this time he paid a dowry to to whoever the head of the household was for, um, the 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 marriage, right? Right. Okay. Uh, in twenty four, it says that Rebecca went to her mother's household. Correct. Which stands to reason that the head of the household would probably be her brother. Uh, maybe I think her father's actually mentioned later in this story. 
Okay. Well, as of right now, well, then never mind. I was just going to say he sees uh, the the gold, and you know, that's what charges him to go out and 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 to see the camels and to invite him into the house. Okay. So I think that's where. I, I think that's where I would have gone. Absolutely. Ah, shit. I wanted those gold stars so bad. No, uh, I didn't get any gold stars for this either, which is why it's so exciting to me because this to me is absolutely cool. Okay. Right? So in verse 31, this is Laban speaking. And he said, Laban said, come blessed one of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside when I've prepared the house and a place for the camels? And then the next verse says, And the man came to the house and unloaded the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the people who were with him. Now, it's interesting because that Hebrew there for and the man in 32 is only used to refer to Eliezer in this passage. And so what it sounds like happens is Laban says, come, blessed one of Yahweh, why do you stand outside when I prepared the house and a place for the camels? So Eliezer came to the house and unloaded the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the people who were with him. This is what this uh, site does that I think is brilliant. The man isn't kind. Laban isn't kind. He makes Eliezer do all the work. The only person that's referred to as the man in this Hebrew way is Eliezer. Holy shit. So he doesn't, Laban, the way we read it, it's as if Laban does all this. Or Laban has his own servants do this. But that's not the case. At least not if the Hebrew is genuinely only pointing to, and you can look it up in the Hebrew, it's only referencing Eliezer when this word is used in this passage. And so the man here is Eliezer. So Laban says, I've created a, I create a place for your camels. Uh, I prepared the house and a place for your camels. And then he leaves Eliezer to do all the work. This is really fascinating to me. And at this moment, Eliezer remembers or decides that for this man, what's important is success and lineage. Not Eliezer. Abraham values Eliezer, who's not of his lineage. Abraham values kindness and generosity, which is why Eliezer gives the jewels because the woman was kind, not because of her lineage. And yet when Laban comes out to meet Eliezer, Eliezer does not show that kindness. And so Eliezer recognizes that the way to this man's heart is lineage, success, lineage and jewels and truth, but not kindness. This is super interesting because What's really amazing then is that if this is the space in which Rebecca grew up, she doesn't reflect that. She meets 
Eliezer at the well, and she offers to get him water, and she offers to water the camel. She is the opposite of Laban, right? Laban is this unkind person, yet it's because of her kindness that makes her worthy to receive the jewels, not her lineage, not her success. It's because of her kindness. So what Eliezer is looking for is kindness, and Laban seemingly doesn't demonstrate this kindness to Eliezer. That's crazy. And we know, according to the next few sections, when we get up to Jacob uh, fleeing and uh, meeting Rachel and Leah, the type of person Laban is. So it's almost an insight. I mean, he tricks Jacob into having to stay for longer to work the fields and stuff, right? Because for him, what is important? Not kindness. Yeah. Right? So this is an early insight into the character of Laban. That makes so much more sense why he um, does the veil trick then. Because if lineage and success is what's most important, then you must marry your oldest daughter off first. That, that's interesting. I hadn't considered it that way. Now I'm really excited to get to that passage. Well, before we get excited and want to jump along, yeah, <laughs> there's, we finish this up. Well, there's some other pieces that's really important to notice about Rebecca. So in our oldest manuscripts that we have of the Hebrew, uh, we notice that there's something uh, important happening uh, when okay. it comes to how we describe Rebecca. And that is that Rebecca is described as a young man. What? Yep. I've never heard this before. So uh, this is the power of Google. You can Google this uh, for anyone who is concerned about this. That in the earliest manuscripts, Rebecca is called a young man. She's described in very masculine terms. I mean, to water 10 camels was quite a feat of strength and power, right? Uh, that she had the autonomy to uh, invite this stranger back to the house. And then the family, Laban and her mom, say, well, let her stay with us 10 more days. And what does Rebecca do? Um, she says, no, I'm going with him now. Yeah. yeah. She has autonomy. Right? Like she is, this is a gender norm flip. Now, let me point this out. This is a gender norm flip for us. Right? And so we read this and we go, wow, this is a gender norm flip in the text. Look, this is 24 chapters in. The text hasn't even established yet what its gender norms are. So our problem is we've assumed some gender norms. And then we imply this and apply that to the text. But Rebecca is referred to in all of these ways that seemingly we only imagine that the men behaved in the text. This is significant because when we get to the next section, right? And this isn't too much of a spoiler alert because I think some of the things I want to talk about in the next section uh, aren't going to necessarily be this piece of it anyhow is that Rebecca is the one that God speaks to about the promise of Jacob and Esau. 
God doesn't talk to Isaac about this. God talks to Rebecca. This is the spoiler you gave earlier in the episode, right? That God actually engages Rebecca. Yeah. And and Rebecca reflects Abraham. Right? Rebecca is very much Abraham. She shows generosity to the stranger that wanders into his into her town. Right? She goes out and meets them and greets them and takes care of their needs. Right? She behaves like Abraham. If there's anything being told in this story, is Eliezer went to find a woman that had the character of Abraham. And she was strong and she was generous and she was kind and she was autonomous and she had agency. All these things that we are not expecting. And she is described as a young man. This is so interesting to me. Now, you're going to find that uh, if you Google this, that the earliest manuscripts that had it, some try to argue that it was a typo, but it was a typo made a few times. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, there wasn't a typewriter, so it was a scribal error. But in the earliest manuscripts, they made a notation in the, in the, uh, in the margins referencing the fact that it had been changed to young woman uh, because uh, it had said young man. Uh, and it, it eventually just became changed. They just changed it to young woman, right? But she reflects all of this power and stuff. And if you think about Jacob and Esau, both of them are strong and powerful. Yet we have this picture of Isaac. I think you called him a wet blanket. I did uh, call him a wet blanket. We have this picture of Isaac where he doesn't exude a whole lot of confidence in strength and power. I mean, as an adult, his father, who was elderly, was able to subdue him and bind him to offer him. Uh, and, you know, it's he's fooled, he's tricked easily by his sons. Uh, you know, there seems to be this sense of weakness for him. Uh, and in fact, he seems so weak and fragile that he doesn't even go to find his own spouse. Abraham sends a servant to do it, right? Like all of this is such a interesting setup for the next section of text. So for me, I find this to be really, really compelling uh, picture of Rebecca. Yeah. I mean, I'm now I'm really excited to, I mean, I love the Jacob and Esau story. Um, I think it's one of the most compelling parts of Genesis, honestly. And so now I'm, I'm really excited to read that with this new information at light. Yeah, I think it's important because it's setting Rebecca up. She's a matriarch. Yeah. Right? Like, she's a matriarch. She goes back to her mother's house, not to Laban's, not to her father's home. She goes back to her mother's home, right? And this is also important language. Like, what was it that they valued? And so there is a matriarchal a picture that at least Rebecca embraces significantly. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, so we are getting close to time. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover before we, um, you know, I, I don't really think too much, uh, that there is. Um, the only thing I would say is just kind of a side note that, you know, not to shortchange Abraham's death and all this, but, 
you know, as just kind of a, a side note on that story of his death is that Isaac and Ishmael are together in this story. Yeah. Like they seem to be friends or they seem to still be in relationship, which is fascinating because that seems to go against everything Sarah wanted. Um, and it's, to me, it's at least interesting that, uh, Ishmael and Isaac are there together to bury their father. Well, I almost wonder, you know, we see Abraham take another wife and have more children um, as well. But, you know, when, when Abraham leaves, we covered this last week after the binding of Isaac, he goes back to where Hagar is. Right. And so the wife that's listed here in 25. Yeah. uh, Keturah. Uh, many commentators slash rabbis argue that that is actually uh, Hagar. Really? Yeah. Interesting. That he makes her his full wife, not just a concubine. I can't wait to read more about that, but I almost wonder if, um, you know, there was a, and then, you know, this is, kind of getting into the realms of Midrash, but just like, you know, if when Abraham goes to Hagar after the binding of Isaac, he reestablishes this type of relationship with Ishmael to where Ishmael goes with him when he goes to uh, bury Sarah. Yeah. And then there's this, you know, reunification of family there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a very possible plausible uh, idea. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, and by you, I mean you listeners. So, you know, shoot us an email. Get active with us on uh, on social media. Uh, you can email us at our evangelbros at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at evangelbros. Um, and yeah, we really hope you're enjoying the series. But, you know, if you have any other ideas of stuff that you want to hear us talk about, always reach out definitely yeah and uh you know if you also haven't yet wherever you listen to this podcast please stop by and give us a rate and review five stars really help us get to a broader audience and uh we just would love to hear some feedback on this well i have been your co-host george i've been your other co-host don have a great week everyone see ya